This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back tomorrow. Two icons died at the beginning of the weekend. One American, one Canadian. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died of complications related to metastatic pancreatic cancer on Friday at the age of 87. And during the night from Friday to Saturday, former Prime Minister John Turner passed away peacefully in his sleep at the age of 91. We'll take a few minutes to remember them as we begin our weekly conversation with the Zoomer squad. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hello, squad. Hey, Jane. Hi there, Jane. Good afternoon. Peter, I'll begin with you and your thoughts on the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who refused to retire despite her health challenges and worked pretty much right up until the end. Yeah, and her longevity has created quite a uh, quite a, a lot of political turmoil in the, in the U.S., uh, especially with her, her uh, deathbed wishes that she didn't want a new judge appointed in her place until... Um, the new uh, a new president was elected, and um, you know, regardless of whether that's constitutionally possible or not, is uh, it's just created so much squabble in the U.S. And the, you know, the Supreme Court is supposed to be an, a non-political body, but it, it just shows that it, it's absolutely political, and the appointment or or no appointment it will, will be a huge. Uh, huge, uh, uh, you know, uh, turmoil going forward. It's just causing so much chaos right now. I know this was written about on everythingzoomer.com. In terms of her legacy and what she's left us, having been just the second woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court and fighting for women's rights uh, since she was a young lawyer, certainly uh, her legacy is epic. No doubt. And, and, uh, you know, just proven by the outpouring of uh, of support and and tribute she's she's been getting since she's become sort of a a pop culture figure. For, you know, the the first Supreme Court judge to be you know, transform into a pop culture figure. Right. We should all watch uh, the Betsy West documentary from 2018 called RBG to get a real sense of what she was about, because she was uh, actively promoting women's rights before a lot of us were born. At the age of 87, she passed away on Friday. Bill, what would you like to add? Well, I'm, you know, there are two things that strike me. One is what a wonderful indication she is on how Older adults can continue to contribute uh, even in their in their later life as as she did in spite of her health issues. And uh, I think it's a sad thing uh, in many ways is that we're now seeming to focus on uh, what's going to happen after in terms of her replacement and not focusing as much as we should 
on what she accomplished, her uh, uh, her whole involvement in Roe versus Wade and women's right to choose uh, for them for themselves. Uh, it would have been it would have been nice if we could remember her possibly more than spending all this time worrying about what's going to happen now. Well, that's uh, why we brought you folks in as well, right? <laughs> to to focus on the Zoomer elements of her life, uh, David. What do you what do you think about the fact that she worked right until the end, but yet was advised uh, on many occasions to slow down and retire? Well, that is very that is very uh, Zoomer like, you know, that sure because there was no a diminution of her mental faculties. She had uh, the ability to discharge uh, her function, her job, and she did so. But I also think there's another angle on this that that should be said that is maybe a bit of a culture change. That she was very dear friends with uh, Antonin Scalia a justice on the Supreme Court who is di- uh, diametrically opposed to her legal positions. Uh, so it, she, I think maybe the last of that era where maybe you can be collegial, you can be respectful, you can actually have a, a, a personal friendship. It wasn't just tolerance of each other. They're actually friends. They went out for dinner together, there, and they couldn't have been more opposite. So that the kind of venom and acrimony we're seeing today doesn't, uh, she was she was of that old school. She actually said very positive things, for example, about Brett Kavanaugh, whose appointment to the court was very acrimonious, and she likes him. So she's an example of being able to hold to a position and be strong in a position and yet be uh, respectful and courteous of people with the opposite position. And I think that's going to be missed as well. Well, isn't that something you would want? Wouldn't that be the best quality of a true judge or justice? For sure. For sure. Yeah. Suggest, by the way, that the court itself may be less political than uh, what it's being made into by the politicians. The justices themselves may be uh, less acrimonious and less, uh, you know, sniping at each other. And there have been examples where the the people that were supposed to be conservative didn't necessarily vote that way on an issue. Uh, so the court may be more collegial than the than the politicians give it credit for. I guess, uh, you know, and just one more comment from each of you on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and that idea of regardless of health, but if you feel well enough to carry on in your work, if you're passionate about it, that that could bring you a lot of joy in your final days, Peter. Well, certainly. I mean, don't we all want to be in our late 80s and, and still able to function at our job? So. In- you know, in that in that way, she she was like, uh, you know, truly inspirational for uh, for older people and older people who are still working. Bill, what about you? Your thoughts on that? Well, I can certainly uh, identify with what uh, Peter uh, says, as, as she is a uh, a role model uh, for us all, of the way she she carried on and, and the way she used uh, her older age to to. Uh, talk about things that were important uh, to older adults. You'll recall when she uh, uh, fell and hurt herself badly and there was all kinds of call for her to uh, step down. She not only resisted that, but uses an opportunity to help remind other older adults about how to avoid the dangers of falling that we all fear. She was very conscious 
of the effect she was having on the general public and seniors especially. Yeah, Bill, you, you bring up an excellent point because she loved her physical activity as well, David. She was a huge proponent of exercise right up until, uh, well, who knows, maybe she was doing her exercises right up until no. her last day. And and who knows whether you know how many how much that extended her life in mm-hmm. the face of illnesses because the illnesses uh, were there. But I think also another spin on that is not just what she was doing um, for herself, but it illustrates why should society be denied precisely because she was so brilliant and passionate. It's good that we had her services as long as we did. Why should we have turned off that? that fount of, say, knowledge and experience and judgment uh, due to some, you know, arbitrary age thing. I think it's exactly because she was such a, uh, a significant justice that society should be grateful that we had her services for that length of time. We will carry on here with our tributes uh, now to former Prime Minister and longtime Cabinet Minister John Turner and his legacy around the table again. Uh, Peter, how are we remembering John Turner as Canadians? Well, I, I, I wrote about it uh, on the weekend. Um, he, he was a man who um, twice had the chance to leave the country and was twice undone by bad timing. Like, in 1968, he was considered the golden boy, you know, the up-and-coming young liberal. And then he ran into Trudeau mania, and that was that for his political um, aspirations for leadership. Um, And then he went back to private life and came back in 1984 when Trudeau called it a day and um, ran into a uh, Mulroney-Quebec West coalition that uh, defeated the Liberals twice. So, you know, his his legacy was just one of bad timing. If he had managed to, you know, um, come in a little bit earlier than Trudeau or a little bit later than Mulroney, he would have definitely been our prime minister. But uh, them's the breaks. You know? Well, despite the, the relatively short amount of time that he was prime minister, his legacy really is rooted in so much more in public service. As a finance minister, he was said to have been stellar back in the day. Right, and, and he opposed Trudeau on, uh, on wage and price control in, to, to uh, curb inflation, and, um, and that spelled the, the end of, of his uh, term, because Trudeau was going to push ahead with, with wage control, and, um, uh, you know, and that was that. Bill, your thoughts on John Turner? Well, yes, I was uh, just finishing my degree in political science at uh, WLU just at that uh, time and then moved out to work in uh, Alberta and D.C. for a while. And I was interested in the very different feeling toward him between Upper Canada and uh, uh, the the West, that he certainly... uh, uh, had problems in, in, in the West in terms of uh, uh, being accepted, uh, even though his, his strength and his ability was recognized uh, almost uh, uh, like they say about uh, Robert Stanfield being the, uh, uh, the, the best uh, prime minister that we, uh, we didn't, uh, didn't have. Uh, uh, Turner very much the same with his short-lived uh, uh, Time in the time in the time in the job, and uh, I think his whole his whole history, his whole career is almost a textbook in terms of a, a case study 
on uh, politics and what to do and what not to do and how important timing is. Yeah. David, what about you and your recollections of John well, I, Turner? I, I think that, that this might be a case where one was undone by one's own image because he was so, uh, he was such a hot media property, so young, he had that famous dance with Princess Margaret, he was handsome, and it almost became that he was uh, underrated, he was maybe seen as, you know, fluffier than he really was precisely because of his good looks and his social graces and his infinite Rolodex. He knew everybody. He was uh, um, he was an athlete, not, too. Yeah. A star athlete. Yeah. He was an Olympian. He was a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, he had everything going everything. for him. Yeah. And and then it, 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 it sort of never quite, you know, materialized. And I think it's partly timing. But I think I also think that he may not have been um, uh, ruthless enough for the game, I think that he was a very substantial, a substantive person, but he may not have had all the uh, the tricks of the trade um, when you consider the people he was up against. And uh, oh, yeah. uh, I think he's had a wonderful career, but it was always he always got the sense that there was a near miss there somewhere. Peter, just a final question to you, since you did re- uh, write about John Turner on the weekend for EverythingZoomer.com. Do you think, or do you know, whether he had any regrets? Um, he, he was very, um, you know, he, he never made politics personal and he, once he left politics, he was very quiet about his time there, but he did, he did say something, um, along the lines of, you know, he, he he used a sports analogy. He said in politics, one day you're a hero when you score the winning goal and the next day you're a bum when you let in the winning goal. So he, I think he sort of felt he was a victim of bad luck and, uh, and bad timing. And, and, but he, to his credit, he, he didn't sort of uh, spend the rest of his career complaining about it. He just moved on. Our tributes to John Turner and Ruth Bader Ginsburg here with the Zoomer Squad, Jane for Libby. Our Zoomer Squad is here with us every Monday on Fight Back. David Kravitz, Bill Van Gorder, and Peter Mugrich. So we'll change topics now and talk about the daily COVID-19 numbers. Today's 425 in the province is the highest daily tally since May 24th, with 175 of those new cases here in the city of Toronto. On Friday and over the weekend, Premier Doug Ford established a new rule for the province. Hold a gathering inside of more than 10 people or outside of more than 25 people, and you will be fined $10,000 if caught. Is this the best course of action in the face of rising numbers? I'll put that question to you, the Zoomer Radio listener. First, before I go to the squad, I want to hear from you on this. Is this the right strategy as the numbers continue to rise again here in the province of Ontario. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Who wants to start on this? Bill, are you good to start? Certainly am. I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, probably three now, when we were talking about the same thing, I was telling you that our CART members uh, right across the country, but especially in Ontario, were telling us that they thought that the rules were getting a little extreme. We had to lighten up a bit. We were uh, making too many decisions uh, on behalf of seniors that attempted to keep them safe. And now uh, their attitude has just turned around 
180, 80 degrees. They're so concerned that uh, the lid hasn't been uh, kept on. They're worried and they're afraid that all the good that was done over this next six months is uh, is going down the, the drain. And many of them are very anxious and frightened at this point. David, what are your thoughts on this cracking down on gatherings, getting people to uh, be re-instructed in the basics of social distancing and masking? Is, is that the way to go? I don't think there's any harm in it, but I'm, I'm, I think it's more political optics. I think they want to be seen to be doing something. The problem I have with the rebound is that we don't have any context for what it even means. So who are these 400 cases? How sick are they? How old are they? Where are they? Can they be isolated? We may look back and say, if we added 400 a day for a month, that represented a massive victory over the second wave. We don't even know what any of this means yet. So uh, I think the advice is good. I think the government always wants to look like they're on top of things. When, But it's really, you know, it's reached a point now that I don't think uh, anybody's got a good enough handle on any of these measures to know uh, what it's going to do. And I repeat, you know, I said this last week, I really think it's up to us as individuals to be very, very careful and to act as if uh, the lockdown isn't over or to, to, to work within these rules to the best that we can. But I don't see any magic answer here because I don't think the authorities themselves uh, are sure of what they're dealing with anymore. Well, Peter, I mean, certainly we can't go back in time, but we can go back to phase two when we seem to be making daily progress. Uh, now with these um, all summer long, where it was technically legal for you to have 50 people inside if everybody was physical distancing or 100 people outside, we see what that's resulted in. Bars, gyms, uh, inside dining. Maybe none of that is necessary as the numbers climb now. So I'm wondering if people would be in favor of locking back down to phase two. Um, yeah, that, that's the worrisome uh, development that, that could result from all of this, because um, I, I've said it uh, many times, is, is we, you know, for, for the sake of small business, we can't go back. Like, it, it, these people just barely survived the first wave. And if there's going to be another long lockdown, um they're not going to survive. So, you know, right now Ford's at, at a, a very difficult point. He's got to, you know, weigh the effect of restricting um, gatherings and restricting indoor um, dining and, and that sort of thing. And and he's got to weigh it with the future of the economy. Like, what, if, if these businesses go belly up, they're not coming back, you know. So um, he, he is walking a tightrope here, and uh, I certainly wouldn't want to be in his shoes. We want to go to the phones now. Some of you want to get in on the conversation about uh, the numbers and what Premier Doug Ford should do about it. 416-360-0740. Toll-free, 1-866-744-740. Let's go to Darko in Etobicoke. What do you think, Darko? Yeah, well, I think we're in a different situation in May because we only had one death. But we have 65 people in hospitals. 20 in the IAICU. So it's not the same. 
Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. We are testing a lot more people, Bill. I mean, we're testing 30, 35,000 a day, whereas back in the early days of the pandemic, they were still around eight, ten thousand 10,000 a day. So if you look at it as a percentage, we're certainly doing better than we were in the spring. Well, I think that's the confusing part to many people. As uh, David, David said, uh, we're not sure exactly what those numbers mean, but that's part of the anxiety that it causes by not having a clear picture of, of what we're talking about, what's necessary, and the inconsistencies uh, uh, in uh, what the new what the new rules are. That some large uh, facility uh, gatherings are still being allowed, where smaller ones aren't, and and, and people aren't quite sure from one day to the other what the new rule is. Right. And when you when you think about in terms of how the premier has changed the rules around gatherings since Friday, it makes you and in hindsight, too, because none of us has ever dealt with this. Had they kept the gatherings at 50 and 100 to businesses and where you have staff, et cetera, and kept private gatherings to where they are now, maybe we wouldn't be in the same predicament. But again, it's a hindsight situation. Um, I want to talk about long term care and the number of cases in long term care. I don't know if you know about this, but as of Saturday, there were 22 active outbreaks in long-term care homes in Ontario. And within these homes, there are 54 active cases of COVID-19 among residents. Are we setting ourselves up for a second wave that may eclipse the first? Geriatric specialist Dr. Nathan Stahl at Toronto's Mount Sinai Hospital says yes, the potential is there for this. And he says that staffing ratios remain woefully inadequate. I want to start with Bill on this since CARP is actively trying to hold Premier Ford accountable on fixing long-term care. Well, certainly uh, uh, we would we would agree that the staffing, staffing levels, staffing, uh, the energy that's left uh, in the people who are still working, who have, who have been at this for six months uh, now, the training that we've been promised and hasn't uh, hasn't come yet. All of those are real, uh, real concerns. We're not, re- we're seeing promises, but we really haven't seen any changes in how long-term care uh, staff is handled, the numbers and the ability of them to cope with a uh, another wave. Uh, certainly, we've got to hope that that doesn't happen because uh, there's no indication that we're better off now than we were six months ago. David, your reaction to Dr. Stahl's comments that we're setting ourselves up for a worse second wave in long-term care? I don't know whether that's you know, mathematically true. I mean, nobody can say you're going to get literally the same number of deaths this time around as you had the first time around. But I share Bill's concern and the Dr. Stahl's observation that not much has changed. We have stories where the long-term care home providers uh, I think the nurses union came out with a statement that, that there's nowhere to work. So you've got the same exact situation of, of inadequate uh, uh, staffing in these homes and nothing has moved. And I think six months is long enough to have seen something move. Mm-hmm. Uh, where was the plan to recruit more people? There, there's personal care worker training courses that are less than six months duration, and you can get a certificate. Where are the where are the where's the recruitment of those people? 
So I think that it's been very, uh, uh, they, they've gotten a breather, I suppose, in this awful first wave. Then it abates, it, it dies down. And that's when the uh, reinforcement, you know, that's when they should have sent for the cavalry. The reinforcement should have come in. And nothing has happened. I think that's very, very serious. Well, there are indications, possibly as early as this afternoon, when Premier Ford has his daily briefing, that he's going to raise the pay for PSWs. Uh, Peter, you know, in terms of how much the pay should be raised and whether this will provide part of the answer, uh, is this a good starting point, which actually feels like it should have happened a few months ago? Yeah, it should have happened a few months ago. And, um, you know, if if people are unwilling to go into the profession, um, I don't think like a $2 pay hike is going to get them interested in it. You know, I, I, I think that it's a good start, but it's certainly not a long-term solution. And I don't see it uh, changing the, uh, the staffing issues at all. I want to get back to our listener calls here. It's Jane along with David, Peter, and Bill, our Zoomer squad on Monday. Libby returns tomorrow. Let's go to Dennis in Brampton. Uh, Dennis, your thought about the numbers, long-term care, what's on your mind? Thanks for taking my call, Jane. Uh, It's really relating to the numbers. And one of the um, things that's being overlooked when we discuss number of cases, people talk about deaths in relation to cases, but there is a lot of uh, evidence and instances out there now where the effects of the COVID disease are lasting much longer than uh, anyone had thought. And they're actually being referred to as long haulers who are having negative impact of COVID six months to a year after they've had the disease. So um, people treat are continuing to treat this as just a, uh, or some are continuing to look at it as normal flu. It is not. And uh, that's my comment. Yeah, thank you for calling, Dennis. David, uh, Dennis brings up an excellent point that we, you know, and this this goes back to some of what you are saying as well, that we really don't know that much about this particular virus. We don't know that much about it, and Dennis is right. There are long-term effects. We also haven't, we've got some anecdotal uh, evidence of who's most likely to get it. I read uh, that there's there's an interesting correlation between vitamin D deficiency and getting it. We know that people with comorbidities are getting it more than, than healthy people. But it's a very complex pattern. And, you know, I was very critical of the government a moment ago, but in fairness, they're trying to make policy on the hop when the data keeps changing, the, the knowledge keeps increasing, uh, you know, different studies, different experiences, uh, different jurisdictions. So it's a very, very tricky uh, problem to navigate. But I think uh, there are lots of long-term effects. And then the other thing we haven't even talked about is the other health issues uh, that got put off when the hospitals, uh, you know, were locked down and were not taking uh, discretionary surgery and so forth. So the spillover of this is going to be just huge by the time it's all tallied up. Let's go to Ron in Toronto. Ron, what would you like to add? Well, I'm trying to understand, thanks for taking my call, Gene. Um, Why are they making these changes in terms of number of people that can attend in in social gatherings? Why are they making them province-wide when, I mean, you go to Cochrane, Ontario, or Hurston, you're lucky if you have five COVID cases for the whole year. 
No, that's a, that's a great point, and I mm-hmm. wondered about that on the weekend as well because we had um, Markham's mayor on Friday, Frank Scarpitti, saying, "Hey, what about York Region? Uh, York should also be included along with Peel, the city of Toronto and Ottawa." And then the next day, it was the entire province. The only thing I can suggest on that is um, at least we keep it consistent so that you don't have people from Toronto, Peel, and Ottawa possibly going to large gatherings in other regions of Ontario. Does anybody well, else I mean, want to could, add to that? I mean, it would be easy to say the region Durham, York, Peel, and the regions and you know, whatever the capital region is in Ottawa mm-hmm. um, should have to, you know, live by those rules. But I'm I'm at a loss to understand why Sudbury, North Bay, Capus Casing, all those other places, you know, um I don't understand why they need to be living under the same rules. No, I thank you for your call and your question. Um, Peter or Bill, do either of you have any thoughts yeah, on that? You know, Ron has a good point, because uh, when we first thought we had, um, you know, beaten the first wave, um, Ford said we were going to deal with outbreaks as clusters and, and um, sort of manage them as they grew up in the regions where they grew up. So we would have different regions with different rules. And now he's sort of slapping one rule for all regions. So he, he's backtracked a bit on that. And I agree it's it's another mixed message coming from the government. Before I let you folks go for another week, our Zoomer squad here every Monday uh, after the new news until 1230. But we like to keep them a little longer because they're very interesting. (laughs) Uh, I want to ask you as well, and it was a conversation Libby got going on Free For All Friday about what to do when you see somebody unmasked in a business, in a store. How do you should you say something to them? What is the protocol? Um, Some of the experts say it's just best to go to the staff and point out the individual who's not wearing a mask. But should you try to have that conversation with the person yourself? Uh, I'll go to Bill and see what you think about that. I think one of the problems that we face is there's, uh, we've talked uh, before about the mixed messages that we're getting about the uh, use of masks and and other preventive uh, uh, measures and people not understanding that they're a part of the process and not just the single one thing that you do. In that case, if it's a person that you can feel you can, can talk to, then uh, uh, give them some feedback. Let them, let them know why you feel unsafe because they're not uh, wearing, wearing a mask and explain it to them. If you can't get there, if you don't feel that you're going to be safe yourself, uh, you're better to worry about your own mask and uh, just avoid those uh, people. There's absolutely no uh, reason to get into any kind of confrontation. Bill, what do you think about that? Do we still have Bill on the line? Sorry, that was Bill. Oh, that was Bill. Sorry. Let's go to Peter and ask you that question. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, you you tread lightly when you're offering some advice out there because... um, you know, if the person's not wearing a mask, they're not wearing a mask for a reason, and and some of them might be a little bit difficult to approach. So I, I would tread warily around them. Yeah, David. Same idea. I, I agree. I've, I've actually not seen this happen yet, and uh, I think a lot depends on where is it, where is the moment. I, I walk down, as I've said before, to a neighborhood store, and I see often lots of people coming down the sidewalks, including me, not with a mask outside put the mask on as they approach the store. So if I'm walking down the sidewalk and someone's coming the other way and we're going to pass each other in five seconds, I'm not going to make a big uh, 
federal case out of it, and I've yet to see anybody inside a store, any store I've been to, uh, without a mask. So uh, maybe I'm lucky that I've not been in that situation yet, but I would be very, my own personality, I guess, I would not, I would be very uncomfortable about, uh, you know, confronting somebody. Yes, uh, I think you bring up a a great point there, David. It's the same for me, and I'm in stores, you know, as we all are, right, to get our essentials, uh, not so much with retail, because you can get that stuff online, but it does seem like, Everybody, basically everybody is wearing a mask. And I think a big part of that is because the messaging is consistent among all of our leaders and all of our medical experts. And that's been to our benefit in this province and across the country, certainly when you look at what's happening in the United States. I thank you all for your time and uh, look forward to speaking with you again next Monday. I'll be in for Libby next Monday. So I'll talk to you then. Good. Look forward okay. to it, Jane. Look forward thank to you, Jane. Talk okay. to you then. Bye-bye. Thank you all. That was our Zoomer squad. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.